Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. This time, I'm joined by Susie Dent, the lexicographer and etymologist best known for her long-standing role on Channel 4's daytime quiz show, Countdown. She's also written several books and regularly appears on TV, radio, and in print, talking about her favourite subject, words and where they come from. In our conversation, Susie tells me how her family didn't really talk about money when she was growing up, why achieving financial independence was always a big goal in her life, and why she doesn't want money to be a taboo subject for her own children. Susie Dent, it is so lovely to see you and to have you as a guest on the II Family Money Show. How are you? Oh, thank you. It's lovely to see you again because we were with each other in, in Dictionary Corner quite recently. We were. I think I'd had a 24-year wait to be asked back. No, that's <laughs> not quite true. I had, I'd been asked back, but I hadn't had time or it hadn't worked out. So it, we worked out. It was 24 years since I was last there. And you were there the first time. You are the survivor, <sighs> aren't you, of the Countdown team? Yes, the, the stalwart, the veteran. I used to say it was just me and the clock left and then the <laughs> clock was replaced. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, I'm still there. Like, I've just sort of white knuckles holding on under the desk. And um, yeah, fingers crossed well, they'll keep me for a little bit longer. Absolutely brilliant at it, as you are on Cats Does Countdown as well. Um, and we'll get to all of that in your career now. But we want to go back to the very beginning of your life and your family life and growing up, what it was like for you in terms of how you knew or didn't know anything about your family's finances? Were you aware of kind of if money was tight or if they mm. were extravagant with you, if they talked to you about money? What was the experience like growing up? Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I was very lucky. I had a, a really privileged childhood in that we lived in a lovely house, um, you know, sort of reasonably remote. We were in a, a, a lovely village and um, it wasn't the first house that I lived in, but it was the first house that I was kind of aware of. But uh, the one sort of abiding memory uh, of finances from my childhood is that it was top secret. It was a very, it was, it was almost a taboo not to be spoken about. So every Sunday evening, my mum had uh, given up a job as an estate agent to look after my sister and me. And every Sunday evening, she and my father would disappear into one room where basically they would go through the housekeeping. And I think my mum would go through these itemised lists of what she'd spent and that kind of thing. And uh, that makes my father sound very draconian. I don't mean it that way at all, but it was very much a sort of hush-hush thing that just, Mm -hmm. you know, wasn't spoken about in front of us. So... Consequently, I didn't really think about it. I I, um, had pocket money. I saved up, got five pounds at Christmas for a trip to Hamleys, you know. So I would I was definitely a saver in every aspect, including Easter eggs and everything. I just I didn't I just didn't. (laughs) How long did you make your Easter eggs last? Honestly, probably about three months. <laughs> I have no. I just it just for me it was like eking out this kind of pleasure every day, and and money was sort of quite similar in a way, but to this day my father particularly does not like to if, if he talks about money it is in a in a very earnest serious way, mm-hmm. it's not something to have sort of you know very open light hearted discussions mm. about over the over breakfast. That's quite a traditional British attitude, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the fact that. My mum was sort of, it was so circumscribed, her sort of income and that it was the sort of housekeeping. I think it made me really determined to have my own financial independence. There was no way I wanted that. 
you know, a sort of weekly meeting mm. where you're sort of... Did you get the impression she was having to justify her spending? In some ways, I think she probably did. And again, I, I don't mean this in a, you know, to, I don't think my my father ruled her with a rod of iron or anything. But when it comes to finances, yeah, I think, you know, he was the earner. She was given a set amount. And then and then it was all very heavily circumscribed. And that must have been really difficult for her. But I wasn't aware mm. of that. I was just aware of these sort of hush-hush meetings. And one of the things that I try really hard uh, to do with my own kids is to have open discussions about you know things like when I die, what what mm. you know what they will get, and um, you know what they need to plan for, and that kind of thing. So I I've kind of almost gone to the other extreme. Whereas in my family, you know, it's hard. It, I mean, for any family, it's really hard to talk about death, isn't it? Mm. It's like, oh, well, mm. let's not talk about that because that's not going to happen. But of course, it is going to happen to all of mm. us. And so I think that's really important as well is to talk. And about also, legacies. if you are going to have those conversations, not wanting your children to lose their um, get up and go and their, you know, their passion for something or their, you know, kind of hunger to have a career or do something because they think they might be getting a nest egg at some point. You know, do you have yes. to kind of do it in a way that um, leaves all of that a possibility? Yes, that's very true, actually. I haven't particularly talked about figures. I've just talked right. about how, you know, and, and that maybe, you know, hopefully they'll be able to save up for their own house and that kind of thing. But I was just determined to not make it taboo in A any secret. shape or form. Yeah. 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 And yeah. What, does your, what does your father think about the fact that you're more open talking about money then? Do you know, I'm not sure that he's particularly aware of it because he's not there with those conversations. But right. I would never dream of saying to him um yeah I just wouldn't talk about financial arrangements yeah, yeah. with him at all because it would just be so sort of sensitive and that's partly because my father really really worked hard he both my parents came from working class background and they really tried hard to improve themselves I mm. suppose so um they you know they didn't go to university they were so proud when I went to university mm. My father was, he was in business with his, with his brother um, in the textile industry. They did, they did um, well, but it was definitely all his money that he earned. And that probably explains why it was so precious to him and so valuable to him because he certainly didn't have anything mm. handed down to him at all. So I can, I can totally understand that. Um, but yeah, hopefully he'd be happy that it's an open subject between us. Well, as you mentioned, I'm sure he's enormously proud of, of what you've gone on to do and achieve. But academically uh, as well, and not, not just going to university, going to Oxford and then going to America to study at Princeton as well. Um, were you always, uh, from whenever you could kind of first remember, a bookish child then? Did you just yes. devour them? <laughs> yes, always bookish. And in part, it was escape for me. Uh, so uh, I remember, do you, well, you remember these, Gabby, um, you know, annuals. We used, I don't know mm -hmm. if you ever yeah, used to read annuals. I loved annuals. annuals. I loved me annuals. Me too. That was my Christmas. So I would, our house was always freezing. because That's what, the other thing is my dad did not believe in central heating. We had it, Gosh. but it was never switched on. <laughs> so I would find this, the sort of a sunny spot somewhere in the house and just lie on my tummy and just read, read, read these annuals or, you know, whatever I could get hold of. And then when my, so my parents divorced when I was about 12, 13 and obviously a tricky time. So I absolutely immersed myself in books and in homework, um, but particularly in vocab books. So German and French, my first loves, that's what I did at, uh, went on to do at university. And oh, it was weird. I mean, I have no idea why even then vocabulary lists had this, you know, magic for me, but they really did. So we'd go on these 
long family trips to the seaside. And uh, my sister, as I always say, she'd be in the back of the car. She was very, she still is very glamorous, very beautiful. And she would be, um, you know, playing with her new eyelash curlers or I don't know, doing something like a normal teenager. And I would be head down in a French vocabulary book. <laughs> just, you know, I just lost. And I, there was no, I have no idea why I wanted to do Nobody was well, forcing was, you. Nobody was saying, no. Susie, pick that book up, do some work. This was totally <laughs> no. self-driven. No, not at all. In fact, both my parents tried to prise me away from the books. Particularly tried when to we give got you some to... eyelash curlers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly when we got to this said seaside destination, I just didn't want to get out of the car because it was too cold. And I was nice and cosy in there with my vocab books. But they, yeah, they did try to. So I, yeah, it's these, you know, letters, words have had some kind of mystical quality for me ever since, well, for as long as I can remember. I think one of my very earliest memories is staring at shampoo bottles and not knowing what was on them. And probably it was, you know, oxyethyl, whatever, whatever. But just thinking uh, they just were magic to me. I just wanted to try and, uh, and and decode them. So, yes, it's not changed since. Wow. And a lot of people would assume when you've, you sit in Dictionary Corner that it was English you studied and it was, you know, that you were, um, that was your um, major, if you like, in going to America. But foreign languages obviously captivated you. The English language must have come very quickly to you, very easy to you in terms of learning as a, as a kid. Were you the kid that got 20 out of 20 in every spelling test then? <laughs> spelling, yes. I mean, I, I definitely was rubbish at physics. Any kind of really practical subject I was terrible at. I used to say I was rubbish at maths, but Rachel Riley has told me that actually that uh, she finds that so annoying because mm. it's it's such a defeatist attitude and so many people reel off this mantra oh I'm really bad at maths um, and actually obviously I've been on countdown what 30 years now I've been exposed to a lot of numbers games I am getting well distracted. I sat next to you a few weeks ago and you were getting those uh, numbers just as quick as Rachel most of the time and I did say what? to you have you learned these shortcuts <laughs> that you kind of I was watching you write down and you said yeah I've got so much better at maths through doing uh, this show I have I have. It's a brilliant brain exercise countdown, I have to mm. say. But um, you say I'm as good as Rachel. I cannot work out what 113 times 17 is in, <laughs> in 0.3 seconds that she can do. Um, but I love the way she just breaks them down. So she, yeah. she you know, t- takes a number and then will herself sort of, you know, divide it into lots of little bits that then become easier calculations. And it's incredible how she does that. She is can just a, see it. Well, there's a pattern recognition, I think, isn't there? You can see yeah. it starts to happen. Is that what happens to you with words when you're coming up with, you know, the words very quickly as well? Do you have um, a route to, you know, an innate letter word through kind of joining certain letters together? Has that become a pattern? I think it's definitely practice. It's definitely a muscle. So obviously, countdown regulars will know to look for the ing at the end of the word, or they'll need, to, you know, they'll know to stick the s on if to make mm-hmm. a plural, or iest, you know, to get a superlative out mm-hmm. of that. But I still, I genuinely still have days where my brain is just not working, and I only come up with four or five. And it's no secret that Damien Edie, one of our producers, um, who used to be a contestant on Countdown, uh, that he's there up in the gallery as well. Well, um, you know, and his his mind is just incredible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I get a lot of them myself, myself, but some of the absolute gems come from Damien. And thank God, you know, thank God he's there, really. Yeah, I, I would say I don't go around looking at signposts as I think Damien does and then immediately coming up with some kind of fantastic <laughs> anagram. I, I don't do that. But they, they, yeah, I think words do. I immediately start interrogating the origin of a word if I see it and don't know it. 
we've looped about a bit here. Go back to your, you had a, a brilliant education, studied at Oxford, uh, went on to further education in America. How did the leap come from that academic life? Because it could have carried on. You were working for Oxford University Press, I think, weren't you? At yeah. some point. How did that leap happen then to TV? Well, it was n- never intended at all. Um, I did think about becoming an academic, but I went to Princeton purely really because, well, I wanted to pursue Germans. I did German comp- and comparative literature there, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I quite fancied living in New York. So that was my my main impetus. Uh, and it was a wonderful time. And I did my MA and it was I was on a sort of PhD trajectory, I suppose. But then just, I just didn't have it in me to sit for hours and hours and hours. I'm quite a restless person. And I think I go for breadth rather than depth and realised that that wasn't for me. So I stayed on an extra year to teach German, actually, to freshmen, fresh people, I don't know, they're called fresh people now. Uh, (laughs) First years who had to take German as a you know, one of their languages and had a fantastic time. Then came back, then joined OUP, as you say, and was really happy there. I was working on bilingual dictionaries, started right at the bottom. I was an editorial assistant doing lots of filing and, you know, as you do. And then essentially I knew about Countdown, but it, yeah, I mean, everyone has seen Countdown. I think most people have seen it at some point in their lives, but then I discovered that Oxford had a relationship with Countdown whereby they would send someone to sit in the corner and be the word referee. And there were at least four or five people who went. And my boss's boss, who was the marketing director, Simon, said, they're looking for more people to do this. Would you do it? And um, and I said, no, it's not really for me, but thank you. And didn't think any more of it. And then he came back three weeks later. And I genuinely think they really did need more people at this point because we all rotated. There was a, mm-hmm. a team of people. And I think it was maybe three or four times he asked me and eventually told me that it would be a great thing for my job, which to me sounded like you don't really have a choice in this. So, uh, so I went and thank God for Simon really, because you know, I, it just, so, so it was absolutely not, I want to be on telly. No. Which I think is still very obvious by the fact that yeah, I'm still there. I think I said to you when we were sitting together, I'm sure some school friends look, you know, tune in and say, oh my God, she's still there. She's not gotten to anything else, but I absolutely adore it. It's the best gig in the world. And it's spawned, as I mentioned, eight out of ten cats as well. And mm. and and your kind of character, if you like, on that as well, almost seems to play into that slight kind of indifference to the whole of telly and the way Jimmy <laughs> kind of you know pokes you as well, which you do brilliantly. So um, so let's let's talk about the kind of the financial part of it then. When you when you're working uh, in Oxford University Press and you're working in something you love and it's passionate, it doesn't sound like your career motivation at that point was to earn lots of money and have, you know, lots of material wealth. Did you ever no. kind of, pers- yeah. So, so going from university, that was never on the radar for you. It was always about no. enjoying It was the always job. about, but yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I'd, you know, I had very little money when I was, well, I was always in debt when I was studying here. Um, and then at Princeton, I had a small um, scholarship there, which was really nice to have, but it wasn't very much. I used to work in the Porter's Lodge at the Graduate College um, to get a bit more money. And that was that was fine. So as long as I was kind of getting by. And then while most of the time, in the early years at least, that I was working at Oxford University Press, I was living in a fair rented flat in Soho. 
so I was commuting from London, from Soho to London, and um, it was it's, a, it's still the most wonderful flat. It looks down onto Berwick Street, it's on Broadwick Street, wow. and you know, tiny bit shabby, but the best views. Um, it was just a wonderful place to live. But happily, the rent was quite low, and just lived with a succession of friends there, which was brilliant. Um, and then commuted on the bus every day to AUP, getting up at stupid o'clock. And no, money was not a motivation at all. I think I was on when I started I think I was on 11,000 maybe maybe even less than that so there wasn't much to put away and save at that point no not at all no there really wasn't um and in fact if it wasn't for Tim my lovely flatmate in Soho I think I would have fallen behind on the rent uh, a few a few times too and I wasn't you know I wasn't being extravagant but then if I'm honest living in Soho it was quite nice to kind of you know meet friends in the evening and go out but yeah uh, so money was I wasn't it wasn't sloshing about at all Telly obviously opens up the door to more, you know, opportunities and, mm. you know, different different ways of, you know, uh, kind of improving your income stream, if you like. And um, mm. at, at what point did you start to think then, OK, I'm, I'm going to have to get a financial plan here? Or have you ever thought that? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I think... Uh, for a long time, I was a bit bemused by the expectation that if you work in telly, you're a millionaire. And I remember, you know, turning up at various things in this sort of clapped out VW Golf and people expecting this Ferrari outside. I'm sure you've had that as well. I once had an ex-boyfriend text me and say, congratulations on uh, this uh, job at the BBC it was, um, you know, as if I was just about to win the lottery. And I was <laughs> kind of like, no, it's it's uh, license fee pays money. Uh, yes, so, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, you know there is an expectation of a different lifestyle. I think. I think there is, and and obviously we are incredibly lucky. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think I was I went full time at Countdown when oh, just I think probably two thousand four, and um, that's when my my eldest um, had been born, and I th- I figured it would be. It would give me more time at home with her, uh, so I went full time there, but wasn't again on a on a huge salary at all. But I did realise at that point, well, actually, probably I say at that point, it probably took me a good five years to realise I needed a pension, and got in touch with uh, a lovely pensions advisor called Byron, who um, who I still chat to, still full of wisdom, and he said, you've got, you know, you really need to do it's power of attorney, which I really have to do, but that's his new thing and has been for the last 10 years and I still haven't gotten around to it. So uh, that's what I need to do. But yeah, so he made me set up a pension. He said, it doesn't matter how low your contributions are, you just need to get one in place. So that was in my late 20s. So it took me a while. Not that I'm the judge of these things, but that, that you know, yeah. a lot of people haven't done that by then. Um, and, you know, and they're certainly not making regular contributions. So you're in a habit at that point then, aren't you? Which is a really good habit to get into. Yeah, yeah it's really true. And um, and I think that's the key is it doesn't matter if it's even 20 quid, you know, I mean, I really wasn't contributing very much at that point, as long as you've got something in, because of course it's then matched by the government and, um, you know, and, and that's how it kind of accrues. Mm. So I was quite lucky. I think had it not been for the recommendation of Byron, then, um, yeah, I'd probably be flailing about a bit now. You know, it's being self-employed and, you know, just I think every freelancer. I mean, I love the etymology of freelancer, which is that it was um, first applied to knights who were free to use their lance for anyone who paid them, essentially. And I I kind of feel like that's what we still are. (laughs) Um, But 
<laughs> yeah um but you know there's always that kind of will my contract be renewed where, where will I be in two years time and that and particularly in the media industry it, you just know how quickly you can either be overlooked or just you know mm. obliterated life changes very quickly doesn't it yeah so so does that mean that you have always because of that and also freelancers are very guilty of taking all the work thinking the work might stop so you kind of yeah. you know have you been good at putting stuff away for a rainy day off and on so I um, look after others in my family financially so that kind of always comes first and then um, I yeah I basically put away what I can Mm -hmm. and I tell you what's completely revolutionized things for me and I'm sure for a lot of other people as well and you will have heard this a lot is being able to have apps on your phone because you can instantly see what you have where you know you can transfer money in two seconds Mm. And actually, you just have that that permanent dashboard mm. on your phone, which is incredible. Whereas before, it was just leafing through, you know, endless mm. files. Bits of papers, of, yeah. Yeah. I think it does. And it also, when you see, if I go into my app and I look at um, transactions, say, for the week, it does make you more mindful about what you're yes. spending and where it's going, yes. I think. Because there was, I definitely feel in my 20s, I was much more of an ostrich in terms of, you know, what I was spending and where it was going and putting my head in the sand and just not even wanting to look at my bank statements. So, yeah, you're right. I think the technology is definitely, and of course, it makes it so much easier as well to transfer money to things, doesn't it? And put money into uh, different accounts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it has its downsides, obviously, because you can buy a dozen dresses at midnight and then <laughs> <laughs> regret them at 7am. But um, I think if I have the biggest financial regret for me was way before online shopping was buying clothes and then never quite getting around to taking them back to the shop or missing the return date, which sounds ridiculous now. But in those days, you just couldn't send no. them through the post. You sometimes, had to go back sometimes to the shop. it was a week as well, wasn't it? You, you know, it wasn't always a month oh, yeah. that you had to take them back. Yeah, I feel like I've wasted thousands on, yeah. on clothes I never wore. And I'm sure many charity shops have been very, very happy to receive things that you decided <laughs> to throw out down the line. So <laughs> That's tickets on. So we, we've established that you've got a pension, and it's mm. been going for quite a while, and which is great. And what about um, other investments, ISAs and things like that? Did Byron yeah. suggest those? Yeah, and uh, Byron did, and also uh, Martin Lewis did. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I have um, a cash ISA, uh, which is is good, and I try not to touch that. I'm always a bit wary of fixed savings accounts because I always think, well, what, what if I, you know, what if I have to take some money out? What happens then? So, yeah, I, I sort of like things to be flexible, I suppose, um, and usually instant access. But um, yeah, but so I, I do make the most of that. I don't, unfortunately, contribute enough to my pension to make the most of all the allowances that the government gives. So I'm not I'm not as financially savvy as Byron would like me to be, I have to say. But I do my best, Gabby. That's all I can say. I do do my best and and I am much more aware of it. And any, any shares or anything? Have you ever done invest in a startup or anything like that? I'm not particularly impulsive financially, but I was massively impulsive. I don't know what I was thinking of when Deliveroo decided to to list themselves. And I invested it's a very small amount in Deliveroo. And the, honestly, it's just they've sunk beyond trace and have kind of proven to me that if I ever do this again, I need to get some uh, some some help. Um, because I quite like the idea- Has it put of, you off investing in shares? Yes, I like the idea of robo-investing. I mean, it was probably the worst time. I mean, at the moment, everything is plummeting, isn't it? Including pensions, to be fair. But- I honestly just thought I don't gamble. I don't do anything. I just thought, oh god, this is this is bound to do really well. It was post the pandemic. 
just post pandemic, I think. And, you know, I thought all these delivery companies have really made their mark now because people will be used to having stuff delivered to them mm-hmm. at home. And mm-hmm. um, no, it turned out to be probably the worst financial decision <laughs> I've ever made. But hopefully it might bounce back at some point. So, um, so share's not really for you. Not after that say. experience. That's not, no. And you love what you do. Um, so going to work is, doesn't seem to be a chore at all to you. Do, you. do you just want to keep doing this for as long as you can? Or have you set a, a date when you would really like to feel you can kind of reap the rewards of the investments and the pensions? Uh, no, I feel like I'm going to be working if I'm lucky enough until I'm in my 90s. Um, <laughs> I can't see that stopping, um, A, because of financial commitments, but also just because I do absolutely love it. And You know, Countdown has been a wonderful shop window for me and, um, you know, it's kind of enabled me to get into lots of other areas. So podcasting like you, I write books, um, I write for various newspapers and things. So I feel it's just it's a lovely kind of portfolio, if you like, that I can just sort of dip dip into all these different things. Mm. And I, I genuinely love that. And I think I would be very scared going back into you know, an off well, an office job. I don't know if they kind of exist in, in the old sense anymore. <laughs> but I think I would find a single focus quite difficult. So I really like skipping from one thing to another. I think that's that sort of suits my my mind quite well. So um, yeah, so I'm really hoping that at least I'll be writing for you know for many years. I have no idea how long I can stay on screen, but for as long as you know they'll have me basically. And do you have um, novel ideas? Uh, you write you write books um, about words, and your podcast is also about words. Do you yeah. do you have stories? That I you have want stories. To tell? I wrote a screenplay ages ago um, that was. I, I mean, I squirm when I look at it now, but it was fun to write. And again, just like those vocabulary books when I was little, a bit of an oasis for me. Really, I I just can disappear mm. into them. So if if life is ever stressful, I think it's so important to have those little pockets in your brain and you can just um, bury yourself in them for a little bit. And uh, yeah, so stories like that, definitely. I always fear though, that because people expect me to be really good with words, that the expectation of any fiction would be immense and that I would always fall short. So that that would be a major worry for me. I can just already imagine critics saying, well, yeah, is I mean, call yourself a lexicographer. Um, so uh, yes, that's a big stumbling block for me. Are you hypercritical of uh, grammatical errors and, uh, you know, words being misused when you see it in either print or on signage? Is, is that something that kind of grates with you? <laughs> so, usually they make me laugh. Sometimes I kind of wince on the radio uh, if things happen. But no, for the most part, lexicographers are um, we're sort of hippie liberals, really, because we chart languages that's evolving. We don't we don't say this is how something should be used. We, mm. you know, so literally has gone into the dictionary to mean both literally and anything but, and I literally laugh my head off. And a lot of people <laughs> hated that. But, you know, that's the way it's being used, so we have to put that in. Yeah. And Where did the etymology of the new literally come from? How did it How did it come to be? I think it's just part of this bigging up of language that we have all the time. So this hyperbole that, that because there's so much noise around us and there's so much information, there's a big cacophony that we have to be heard above. And so everything is uber intense, or you know super cool or we we just no one everything is tragic so when something really tragic happens we're kind of slightly lost um heroes mm. the same um you know mm. all, all the coffees Icons, there's no legends. small coffee is there it starts at some mm. incredibly you know mega italian adjective um so yeah so i, th- I think that's why we just have to add in all these fillers but i do 
I do remember when there was one particular Love Island episode from a few years ago and uh, everyone was up in arms because the word like had been used, I don't know, 74 times in two minutes or something. And she was like, you know, like, uh, and I looked up in the dictionary the very first use of like as a filler and it was 1778. So sometimes you realise that actually we've been complaining about this for centuries. You know, we've been complaining about disinterested versus uninterested, less versus fewer, nuclear versus nuclear for, you know. So less versus fewer is one that it, it does make me slightly, yes. if I'm driving along and I hear it used incorrectly, I do, I yes. do have a moment. <laughs> yes, I, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. But again, that's the sort of, you know, that's the way it will go. My my big bugbear, which I have now decided to be really fascinated by rather than irked by, is mischievous. Uh, because, it, yeah, it's just people are adding an extra I in. But now if I go to schools and talk to, um, to school children, 99% of them will say mischievous. They won't spell it mischievous, mm. but they will say that. Mm. And, it, and there's mm. lots of reasons why. Um, and it's, it, you know, they're, they're, these kind of patterns have been going on again forever. But we don't have any ivus words anymore mm. but we have lots of evious like devious and so we're matching mm -hmm. it to more familiar sounds and that is the way that English evolves so I've decided that this is actually just a snapshot of language change and I need to get over myself <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the financial world um, has have you noticed any changes uh, uh, in language that have uh, either permeated the the kind of daily speak of life or any words that you're quite interested in that have crept into our daily usage I guess yeah that's a really good question I, I would say for the most part in terms of what most of us are aware of it's actually stayed I think, reasonably stable. Although um, I'm mentioning Martin Lewis a lot, but he's come up with his own vocabulary for various things like stoozing and stuff. But I think some of them just have the most lovely, very innocent beginnings like um, to invest originally was literally to put on a vest. <laughs> but albeit, albeit the kind of the robes of office, you know, the, the kind of quite right, posh vests. Right. But it literally yes. was to take something like up. Like a tabard. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or the, you know, the if you were... To vest, so you were you were we were putting on, something. yeah. So you were entering into something. So at an investiture, right. for example, you would be oh, adorning the robes okay. of office. And so yeah. when you invest yeah. in something, you were again taking it on. Um, so I love that. I think during the the credit crunch, everyone was suddenly talking about deleveraging and uh, and various terms that no one had ever heard of. So I remember all these glossaries being printed in the papers to try and explain them. I still don't know what deleveraging is. I have to say. Where does the hedge in to hedge bets, hedge fund? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it is, or for, uh, you'd have to explain to me what a hedge fund is, but I think it is um, the idea of circumscribing something. So if you're hedging your bets, you are being careful and putting boundaries around things just as a hedge might grow around a garden or whatever. But if you were to ask me to define a hedge fund, do you want me to give the dictionary definition? Oh, no, I wouldn't ask you to do that. <laughs> I wouldn't ask you to do that. Um, and what about your your children then in terms of, just to finish off, in terms of what they want to do in life? Have you, do you think you've kind of let it be a very open space and and not, you know, given them your opinions about what you should do in life? Have they found yeah. that that? Themselves. I hope so. Um, I think I think my youngest is not not decided yet at all, and my eldest is is definitely playing her own furrow and is really happy doing that. And I'm I'm so proud of her for that. I, neither of them have expressed the remotest interest in going into telly, which is just as it should be because I don't really see myself as a telly person, and I don't think other people do really either because I am 
I am very much about words and I love the fact that if anyone knows me at all, it is for that rather than just, you know, on telly. And so many other mm. people have said, you know, that actually just saying I want to be on telly because I want to be famous is just is just sad. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's not really I don't think it's a way to a long, successful and no. happy career because uh, it has to be something a bit more behind it, doesn't there? I think that's the, and the proof is in the pudding. Proof is in the pudding. And I think if I've said anything and hopefully I hope, I hope this is the one that's hit home is just find your passion. That's that's all you need is find mm. your passion. And I was just so lucky that it kind of found me so early on because I realised that doesn't happen to everybody. And as long as you find that passion and that actually what you do is somehow feeding into that, I think you'll be okay. What a lovely way to finish. Find your passion. And if you can, like Susie, find your pension in your late 20s. <laughs> I think that is a very good message as well. Thanks for listening to the II Family Money Show. If you've got time, please give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review or rating. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 